welcome to another episode of History Bites, a food history podcast. Today's episode is Full of Pep, a controversial quest for a vitamin-enriched America, part one of two. I'm your host, Sarah Wasberg, and today we're going to talk about health food. Health food is something that a lot of people associate with modern attitudes and diets, but the truth is it dates back much farther. Today we're going to focus on the late 19th and early 20th centuries and discoveries about nutrition that turned science into fads. By the late 19th century, parents in the United States grew increasingly worried about a mysterious disease assailing their children. This disease infected children regardless of their economic status, their location, and even their skin color. Children grew up weak and pale, with curved spines and bowed legs, tired and listless. Doctors grasped at any possible solution. First, they thought it was from lack of milk. Then, perhaps phosphorus. Lethargic, pale children with deformities inspired all kinds of treatments, from the horrific, such as strapping children with deformed bones into straightening frames and breaking bones to try to heal them straight, to the benign, like saltwater baths and gymnastics. Cod liver oil was considered a treatment option, but its use was not widespread until the 1920s, and even then there were debates on its effectiveness. Ultraviolet lamps were also used as a cure. The disease was known as rickets, a vitamin D deficiency that affects primarily malnourished children around the world caused by a lack of exposure to sunlight and or dietary vitamin D, rickets affects the bones and teeth, leading to bow-leggedness, green stick fractures, dental problems, pelvic and spinal deformity, and muscle weakness. However, it wasn't until the 1920s that doctors hit upon the real deficiency that caused rickets, a lack of vitamin D, which is synthesized by the body when the skin is exposed to sufficient levels of sunlight. Fatty fishes like salmon, mackerel, tuna, and sardines all contain vitamin D, as does the popular Victorian cure-all, cod liver oil. Beef liver, cheese, and egg yolks also contain vitamin D, but the easiest way to get vitamin D is to expose your skin to the sun. For Victorian children of all races and classes, especially those living in cities, Exposure to sunlight was minimal, thanks to covering clothing and a lack of outdoor play, as well as a diet rich in meat and starches, but not necessarily in fatty fish, eggs, and cheese. The trend at the time, one which continues to today, was to try to use science to find a solution. Vitamin D2, also known as ergesterol, was manufactured in the late 1920s by irradiating certain types of yeast or mold. Vitamin D3 was created around the same time from the protovitamin D found on human skin. Beginning in the 1930s, synthesized vitamin D was added to commercially produced milk, an easy way to get the vitamin into children. But excessive fortification of foods after World War II led to vitamin D intoxication in infants, with symptoms as bad or worse than rickets. Most European countries in the 1950s banned the fortification of anything other than margarine and breakfast cereals. This little tale serves as a reminder that nutrition science is one of the youngest sciences in the world. 
The information on which we base our modern diets is often less than 100 years old. In fact, it wasn't until the end of the 19th century that Americans really began to take a hard look at diet and what food meant in scientific terms. Throughout much of American history, food was simply something necessary that you ate to survive. In the early colonial period, British settlers in New England ate as few as two meals per day and tended to have a rather monotonous diet, often eating the same thing for breakfast they'd had for dinner the night before. As European settlements began to expand throughout North America, and wealth also expanded, people who could afford to began to eat for pleasure. For Americans, that diet was heavily influenced by the British, with forays into French and African foodways in the South. For most Americans, by the middle of the 19th century, the ideal diet included plenty of refined white bread and butter, milk, potatoes, pies, cookies, and cakes, with expensive treats like asparagus in fancy French sauces, citrus and tropical fruits in winter, and Epicurean rarities like turtle soup, duck, pheasant, and shellfish. In reality, for most Victorian Americans in rural areas, their diets depended heavily on cornmeal and salted meats, and if they were lucky and industrious, the fruits of the garden and the farmyard, including fresh vegetables, dairy products, and eggs. For most Americans in urban areas, their diets depended on bread, some meat, and potatoes, with dairy and vegetables for the middle class, and cheap meats and fruit pies bought from pushcarts for the poor. The ideal beauty of the Gilded Age was a pleasingly plump woman corseted within an inch of her life. But as the century turned, and the willowy, tall, and swan-necked Gibson girl came onto the scene, people began to look to what was on their plates as a solution to their waistlines. Progressive-era scientists sought to help. For instance, although the calorie had been invented as a unit of measurement in the 1820s and was originally used to describe the heating power of steam engines, it wasn't applied to food until 1896, when nutrition researcher Wilbur O. Atwater began to experiment with caloric measurement in humans at Wesleyan University. The calorie soon caught on as a trendy way of eating, and fashionable people in big cities began requesting 100 calories of this and 200 calories of that in restaurants. Along with the calorie came the distinction between proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Nutritionists and laypeople alike understood that meat built muscle and bread and butter gave energy. In fact, because carbohydrates were defined almost exclusively by their ability to give energy as a source of fuel for the body, white bread and refined white sugar became energy-giving health foods. This validated the popular ideal diet of white bread and butter, potatoes, sugar, and red meat. Fruits and vegetables, by that same metric, were thought to be nutritionally worthless, as they contained little protein and fat and inferior carbohydrates. In the late 19th and very early 20th centuries, they were considered the watery but filling fodder of the poor. The discovery of vitamins changed those ideas radically. After reading a scientific article which stated that people who ate brown rice were less likely to contract beriberi than those who ate white rice, Polish biochemist Casimir Funk 
set to work isolating what he later termed vital amines. In 1912, he published a book called The Vitamines, outlining his work to isolate the food elements that would prevent beriberi, scurvy, pellagra, and rickets. Vitamin deficiencies were known as diseases in the 19th century and earlier. Scurvy is perhaps the most famous of these. A vitamin C deficiency, scurvy symptoms include lethargy and malaise, spots on the body that eventually turn into open sores, spongy gums, and bleeding from the mucous membranes, and if left untreated, will end in death. Vitamin C is present in many fresh foods, including cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cabbage, citrus fruits, green bell peppers, kiwi fruit, and berries. It is also present in the blood and raw meat of many animals that are able to produce it on their own. The traditional practice of consuming raw, frozen, or lightly cooked seal or whale meat in many indigenous Arctic communities explains how people eating almost exclusively meat are able to avoid scurvy. Citrus fruit was a known cure for scurvy by Europeans throughout the exploration period of Western history, and lemons, and especially limes, were often carried on long voyages. At home in northern England, raw cabbage and sauerkraut, which is fermented but not cooked, also provided a good source of locally produced vitamin C. Beriberi is a thiamine deficiency, caused by eating white or polished rice rather than brown rice. Beriberi causes weight loss, irregular heartbeat, and can affect the nervous and cardiovascular systems including partial paralysis and heart failure. Beriberi was especially common in Asian and Caribbean countries like Japan, Haiti, and Sri Lanka, where white rice was and still is consumed extensively. Eating whole grains like brown rice and whole wheat alleviates the deficiency, as thiamine is stored in the germ of many grains. Funk also studied pellagra, which is a niacin deficiency that causes the three Ds, dermatitis, diarrhea, and eventually dementia. People who go four to five years without adequate niacin will die. The most common source of this disease throughout the 19th century was the heavy dependence in North America, particularly in the South and West, on corn-based diets, in which the corn was not nixtamalized or soaked in an alkaline solution of lye, or slaked lime to remove the hull. Niacin is present in corn, but only the nixtamalization process releases the niacin for absorption by the human body. Indigenous communities across North and South America soaked corn in watered wood ashes to make hominy and to grind the corn into meal. However, European settlers, with the exception of the production of hominy, generally did not learn this technique. In addition, early settlers tended to eat very restricted diets, subsisting primarily on beans, cornmeal mush and cornbread, and salt pork. Salmon, turkey, mushrooms, and sunflower seeds, all foods foraged or cultivated by native peoples but often ignored by early settlers and many poor southerners, also contain high levels of niacin and would help keep pellagra at bay. Mostly, regular exposure of skin to sunlight kept pellagra from becoming widespread. But pellagra was particularly bad in the late 19th century, up until World War II, especially among children in northern areas who had little exposure to sunlight in winter, and in poor southern and southwestern communities 
where people had little access to meat, fresh foods, and nixtamalized corn. The 1945 film The Southerner featured a poor Texas cotton family whose youngest child suffered from spring sickness, or pellagra. The doctor recommended milk and fresh vegetables, which the family was unable to afford. They begged a hostile neighbor to let them borrow a bucket of milk, only to have it dumped out. In this film, the family ultimately prevails, but the spring sickness was indicative of the diets of many poor families in rural America. Iodine deficiency was another common problem that plagued Europe and North America, particularly in alpine areas, the Great Lakes region, and the Pacific Northwest, where soil is iodine deficient. Most people get adequate amounts of iodine from food grown in soil rich in iodine, but in mountainous areas, regions subject to a heavy rainfall, which washes away the iodine in the soil, and areas where historic glaciation has removed much of the topsoil, iodine deficiency is common. Coastal areas with access to iodine-rich seafood and with iodine-enriched soils do not suffer from iodine deficiency at near the same rate as their inland neighbors. Lack of iodine can cause goiter, which is an enlargement of the thyroid. The thyroid requires iodine to create many crucial hormones. Historically, areas extremely deficient in iodine have supported populations plagued by something historically called cretinism. This extreme iodine deficiency, especially when paired with genetic hypothyroidism, can result in stunted growth, delayed puberty and or infertility, and cognitive impairment. This is less common in North America, but in the goiter belt, which stretched from Appalachia and the Great Lakes westward to the Pacific, goiters were a common occurrence. It wasn't until World War I, when army medical personnel began examining large swaths of the population, that goiter became of national interest. In 1923, the federal government asked the Morton Salt Company to add iodine to their salt products. Salt is shelf-stable, a good vehicle for iodine, and a commonly used household item. It is also an item that is unlikely to be overconsumed, as it is possible to overdose on non-food sources of iodine and get iodine poisoning. Iodine had been added to salt with success in Switzerland, where there were high instances of goiter and cretinism in certain alpine villages. Companies like Morton agreed to add iodine to salt because the amount of iodine required was so small, it added less than a dollar, in today's money, of iodine to each ton of salt, a cost of about five cents per person per year. Iodized salt is also an important ingredient in the fight against preventable developmental and cognitive deficiencies. Infants, in particular, suffer from the effects of iodine deficiency, including reduced IQ and stunted growth. Although the fix of iodine-enriched salt seems like a no-brainer, conspiracy theorists around the world have fought it, seeing it as an attempt by the government to poison them or to control the actions of contrarian libertarians. The result is that even today, iodine deficiency is a problem in remote mountainous regions around the world. Scurvy, pellagra, rickets, beriberi, goiter. The discovery that all of these diseases could be cured by vitamins seemed like a miracle to many people. As the public learned more about the miracles of vitamins and other newly discovered nutrition science, and even periodic elements, 
health food fads sprung up around the country. The 1920s in particular were subjected to a variety of food fads of varying degrees of harm, the worst of which was probably the use of the newly discovered element uranium as a health tonic. Discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie in 1902, radium soon became a fashionable health fad. When radiation meters were taken to popular hot springs and it was discovered that they were mildly radioactive, thanks to radon, it seemed a logical leap to assume that radiation was responsible for the benefits of these spas. But since radon had a half-life of only a few days, a stronger dose of radiation was required. Enter radium. Soon, everything from suppositories and condoms to tonic beverages and toothpastes were laced with liquid sunshine. Radium-laced water, first used as a solution to the short half-life of spring water containing radon, was perhaps the most popular way to ingest the sunshine tonic. One brand of radium-laced water, Radithor, was prescribed to a young industrialist named Eben Byers in 1927. Byers had hurt his arm falling from a rail car sleeping berth, and the pain refused to go away. The Radithor helped and made him feel so good, he started consuming up to three bottles of the stuff per day. This level of consumption continued apace until 1931, when Byers began to lose weight and complain of aches and pains all over, but especially in his jaw. When his teeth began to fall out, he finally saw a doctor, who, thanks to an x-ray, realized that not only was Byers' jaw disintegrating, it also showed lesions on the bone similar to the radium girls of a British watch manufacturer. These famous victims were told to lick the point of their radium paint-laden paintbrushes as they painted the dials of watches so they would glow in the dark. Almost all of these girls died of radiation poisoning, as did Byers and several of his friends, who he had encouraged to use Radithor. Their bones were affected because radium is recognized by the body as similar to calcium and is stored in the bones and teeth. Hence the Wall Street Journal article about him entitled, The Radium Worked Just Fine Until His Jaw Came Off. Byer's body was so heavily irradiated, he was buried in a coffin lined with lead to prevent him from leaking radiation into the surrounding area. A federal investigation into Radithor eventually led to the ban of radium-laced products on the market. It wasn't the first time, nor the last, that the Food and Drug Administration and the federal government would pass judgment on health fads, but it was probably the only time almost everyone was in agreement. This health fad was, in fact, a death sentence. Radium scandals weren't enough to scare Americans off of health fads, though. Dating back to the early 19th century, spas and mineral springs were popular throughout Europe and North America as cures for all kinds of ills. And with the tuberculosis crisis of the late 19th century, dry air was prescribed as a cure-all, which helped launch the American Southwest, and California in particular, into a health boom. Starting in the mid-19th century, Southern California began to attract invalids from all over the country for its mild, year-round climate and lack of humidity that plagued much of the Southeast. Touted for its ability to cure consumption, 
today known as tuberculosis. Southern California soon played host to hordes of people seeking cures and relief for what ailed them, giving rise to snake oil salesmen, hucksters, and health and diet gurus. In 1872, travel writer Charles Nordhoff published California for Health, Pleasure, and Residence, a book for travelers and settlers. Clearly designed as a neat propaganda piece to help develop the area, the book included a chapter entitled Southern California for Invalids, which outlines the now familiar towns of San Diego, San Bernardino, Santa Barbara, and the San Joaquin Valley as suitable places for invalids to visit or live, touting the beaches, mountains, and the mild, dry, and especially sunny climate, as well as the ease of activities such as horseback riding, even for formerly weak people, as well as the abundance of competent physicians. California also became the National Salad Bowl, starting in the 1920s. Fruit and nut orchards abounded, as did double-season vegetable farms. The year-round abundance of fresh foods eventually revolutionized American cooking, with the development in the 1970s of California cuisine. But even in the 1920s and 30s, the burgeoning citrus and strawberry industries in Florida and California and the introduction of lettuces shipped all over the country thanks to refrigeration, helped get more fresh foods into American urban diets. By the 1910s, as film companies moved out west to escape Thomas Edison's patent infringement lawsuits, Los Angeles and Hollywood, California became filmmaking hubs. By the 1920s, Hollywood became synonymous across the United States with sophistication and glamour with the burgeoning film industry and American society in general placing increasing emphasis on the importance of personal appearance, and especially on slender figures, Americans were ripe for the picking by weight loss and diet gurus and exercise faddists. From the book Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science by skeptic Martin Gardner, we learn of popular Hollywood diet guru Gaylord Hauser. Gardner writes, at the present time, one of the most popular eating fads in America is built around the personality of Gaylord Hauser, a handsome, feral-looking man with dark, wavy hair whose face appears prominently in the advertisements of his book. Hauser was born in Tübingen, Germany in 1895 as Helmut Eugene Benjamin Gellert Hauser. He came to the United States at the age of 16, where he contracted tuberculosis of the hip. A Chicago hospital decided his case was incurable and shipped him back to Europe to die. There, high up among the snow-capped peaks, Hauser writes, a miracle happened. An old man who was visiting the family said to him, If you keep on eating dead foods, you will certainly die. Only living foods can make a living body. Young Hauser took his advice and began eating fresh fruits and vegetables. His hip began to heal. Intensely curious about what was happening to him, Hauser developed a strong interest in naturopathy. From naturopathy, Hauser went on to napropathy, a Chicago-born offshoot of chiropractics, and eventually enjoyed a full recovery. In 1927, Hauser, who had legally changed his name to Benjamin Gaylord Hauser, moved to sunny Hollywood, California, where he set up his napropathy practice. Almost immediately, his emphasis on nutrition began to attract Hollywood elites, particularly Greta Garbo, with whom he was rumored to have a long-running romantic relationship. 
By 1940, Hauser had published nine books, including 1939's Eat and Grow Beautiful, elaborating on his earlier cosmetic diet, which emphasized consuming vitamin-rich and low-calorie foods, mostly fruits and vegetables, to maintain healthy and beautiful eyes, skin, figure, nails, teeth, and hair. Is it any wonder that Hollywood starlets and Midwestern housewives alike flocked to Hauser's books and claims. In many ways, Hauser's advice is sound. Eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, especially in a meat and potatoes era, really is good for you. In Eat and Grow Beautiful, he suggests consuming sulfur-rich foods to combat skin conditions, an idea which has some merit as sulfur has been used as an effective skin treatment in the past. Hauser also touts cod liver oil as a cure for rickety children which is also true. He mentions pellagra in his chapter on skin health, but calls the miracle cure vitamin G, which is an old-fashioned term for riboflavin, often known today as vitamin B2. In fact, pellagra is caused by a deficiency of niacin, known today as vitamin B3. So already we have a bit of a scientific inaccuracy in this book. He then goes on to attribute oily skin to a diet excessive in animal fats, particularly pastries. This is, of course, nonsense, but he speaks of nutritional science so convincingly and in such a chatty, down-to-earth, and approachable way that it is easy to see why so many people were swayed by his advice. Hauser is also perhaps one of the first people to recommend juicing, he calls them health cocktails, as a way to boost vitamin intake, including juices heavy on the dark leafy greens. His recommendations are to drink only one cup at a time and not more than three cups of these cocktails per day, which is far more reasonable than today's juice heads who drink fresh juices extensively, often to the detriment of their fiber intake. Thankfully, Hauser suggests these cocktails as additions to his recipes rich in raw and lightly cooked whole fruits and vegetables, so fiber intake is less of an issue with his recommendations. He is also correct in emphasizing exercise and sunshine, but not too much, for both growing children and adults, as well as for advising the reduction of consumption of starchy, sweet, and greasy foods. His recipes, in general, sound pretty delicious on the whole. In an era when canned fruits and vegetables were more common than fresh, and when potatoes, bread, and meat dominated most diets, Hauser's emphasis on fresh and raw fruits and vegetables, especially cabbage and citrus fruits, with mild young cheeses like cream cheese and cottage cheese, must have seemed delightfully refreshing and very Hollywood. Sadly, few people living outside of California could find or afford to eat citrus fruits, pineapples, berries, cucumbers, and avocados year-round. Alas, like many food faddists of the period, Hauser's recommendations combined sound nutritional advice with medical quackery. His main fault is taking incorrect or flawed information on vitamins and extrapolating them to spurious claims. For instance, he had a lifelong love affair with blackstrap molasses. The dark, somewhat bitter, but mineral-rich leavings of sugarcane production is a very healthy alternative to traditional sweeteners. But can it cure baldness, as Hauser often claimed? Highly unlikely. By 1939, Hauser was also in the dubious position of touting his own company, Modern Health Products, as if he were unbiased and unconnected to it. 
His books often have footnotes indicating that certain hard-to-find foods and ingredients, as well as other things like Swiss Chris, an herbal laxative he developed, could be ordered from modern health products. Later, the connection became more overt as he began to sell Hauser broth commercially, a vegetable broth for which he published recipes in several of his cookbooks, Hauser broth is still available today. In the Gaylord Hauser cookbook, published in 1946, we get a glimpse of the approachable, compelling, and cosmopolitan writing style he used to influence so many women around the country. From his introduction, he writes, Tender young meats, deliciously broiled, bright-colored vegetables, fresh, plump, and succulent with their own juices, Salads crisp yet suave, aromatic with herbs, nut-like breads made from freshly ground whole grain flours. What cook does not aspire to serve such meals? These are the foods which delight the gourmet the world over, and these are the foods which build good health and bestow good looks. Hauser's book includes a number of recipes that seem almost modern in their tenor, from juice drinks containing both fruit and leafy greens, made using an early blender called a Fletcherizer, named after Horace Fletcher, a Victorian health guru who swore that by chewing or Fletcherizing food a hundred times or more before swallowing extracted all the nutrients, to eggplant souffle, avocado cream salad dressing, and maple apple cups. California certainly influenced his use of citrus, avocado, fresh pineapple, raw vegetables, dark leafy greens, and nuts like filberts, or hazelnuts, and Brazil nuts. Hauser's emphasis on raw fruits and vegetables and their vitamin content labeled him as a quack in much of the medical community, as did his spurious health and medical claims about certain foods, especially his own commercially produced products. Ironically, his emphasis on vitamin and mineral-rich fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lean meats, leafy greens, and against sugar, refined starches, and animal fats, were in the 1990s adopted as nutritionally sound. In an era when white bread, sugar, animal fats, potatoes, and red meat reigned as the diet of choice, his suggestions seemed heretical. In fact, to me, Hauser seems like a 1940s version of Alice Waters of Chez Panisse fame. If he hadn't been viewed as such a quack, and hadn't turned his attention to convenience health foods with his modern products company, could his ideas have influenced American food more broadly and sooner? We may never know, but I know I'll keep his cookbook on my shelf and turn to it whenever I'm looking for interesting salad and fruit recipes. Okay, folks, that's it for part one of Full of Pep, the controversial quest for a vitamin-enriched America. Stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. Visit thefoodhistorian.com for a bibliography of this episode, including primary sources and recipes from Gaylord Hauser's cookbook. History Bites is now also available on iTunes and Stitcher, finally, for your listening pleasure. Uh, I'm your host, Sarah Wasberg, and this has been another episode of History Bites, a food history podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>